Let us help you reach your peak in retirement. It's time for Retirement Elevated with Sean Lee. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to Retirement Elevated with, with Sean Lee. I'm Sean Lee. I'm managing partner here at, at Elevated Retirement Group. And, and as you can see, we have a guest today. This is something that I'm, I'm actually really excited about. And the guy that I've got here, I've known for a handful of years. And we've got John Buck with us today. So, John, how are you, man? I'm awesome. Thanks for having me, Sean. Yeah. Now, just to give a little bit of background of, of who you are, for those, for those that don't know you, John, you're actually born in my home state of, of Wyoming. Yes. A little bit of ways from me. I'm pretty fortunate as a pitcher that you actually moved out of Wyoming and went and came <laughs> down to Salt Lake because we graduated the same year. And this, the year that we graduated, 98, you were actually drafted in the seventh round, made it to the big leagues in 2004, right? Yeah. Yep. With, with the Royals. The cool thing about that is that you're one of the few players, and I think you told me the number, but you were one of the few players that played 10 plus years. You were 11 years in the big leagues with seven different teams, right? Yep. Yeah. So, but the best year I think was 2010, which that was, 2010 was the, was the special year. Yeah. A year you're um, an all-star catcher, a couple more career accolades. And you know that I'm a red, huge Red Sox fan. And you told me this story before, but you hit 134 career home runs. One of them, came my beloved Fenway Park. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, we, I was, I think it was like an extra inning game. I can't remember what it was. I remember there's a couple of parts that kind of make this home run funny and memorable. Was uh, One, it was at Fenway, of course. That's, you hit a home run in Fenway in the same box that Babe Ruth and Ted Williams and the great stood. That's special in itself. But I happened to hit one left, you know, kind of a screamer over the green monster and Jamie Burley and my wife just happened to go and kind of sit in those spots in those seats. And they just happened to walk out there as I was walk as they were walking out onto the green monster, I hit the home run and Brooke has to literally duck out of the way or my ball will hit her. <laughs> she ducks out of the way. And the other part of that, as I like I said, it was an extra inning game. It was the longest trip around the bases because I, as I hit it, I cramped. As you know, in New England there, it can get hot in the dog days of summer. And I, it was extra innings. And, you know, I think we'd used all our players. So I had to kind of tough it out. <laughs> and so I cramped, literally had a cramp so bad in my hamstring it took me two or three minutes to even get to first and then like <laughs> jog around the bases as I'm cramping, you know, your body's cramping up like this. So it took me a while to get around the bases. And of course, Ozzie Guillen was my manager at the time. I never heard the end of that. It was like, that was the ugliest trot I've ever seen around the bases. Uh, it was like, what will you like look like here? I was like, yeah, I was cramping up. My Everything was cramping, my hands, my feet. It hurt. Like if you were a better manager and like used your subs a little better, I could have been uh, like a speed up runner. If, <laughs> well yeah, hydrated. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, still a home run. Like I, the clip, if you see it, you see Brooke literally dive out of the way and the ball almost hits her. So it was, oh, man. It was kind of funny. Yeah. That's, that's one of my favorite stories. And I, I got a chance to, you know, that I, I go play once a year down at Red Sox camp and I got a chance to just step out on that field and it's it's amazing that you getting a chance to walk out to Fenway Park and play you know just as a fan I 
I couldn't even imagine just playing a four game or three game series there consistently multiple times throughout the year. I would assume that the nostalgia is still the same each and every time that, that you go out there. Yeah, there's there's certain places that, you know, Chicago's that way and old Yankee Stadium was that way. And, the, and it's, you know, playing in old Yankee Stadium and then the new, like you can just feel that different energy there. And obviously Fenway has that special energy. It's hard to describe. It's just like it's a cathedral of greatness that you just get to be a part of. And, you know, like I said, standing in the box where the greatest players to ever play the game. And, and I don't know, there's an aura there that, and then also being in the clubhouses that, you know, that's the same spot that Babe Ruth changed. And there's not much change. Like there's a very good chance. If you moved one of those lockers, you may find Babe Ruth's jockstrap there. And there's not a whole <laughs> lot. There's not a whole lot of has changed there. So the, the authenticity of, of the, the locker rooms and stuff, it's, the same little hole dungeon holes that they were changing in. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Something very special about that. And then also the history, like if you go in the green monster, there's a part in the green monster where they take the tours and you get to peek in, but you go back there a little bit further. There's kind of a player's area, if you will, MVP every area where you got to, where there's messages of the greats that have kind of written on the wall and wrote stuff that some that should be publicly known, some that shouldn't be different right. messages. I don't know. It just has that kind of aura about it. It's cool that it's, if you've gotten to play on there and be a part of that, it's a, it's a special unit, little fraternity to be a part of for sure. That's awesome, man. It's, I actually went into the visitor's locker room in Fenway the day that we played. It's tiny. I, I can't imagine that, you know, I'm, I'm sure the Red Sox locker room's not, not that way at all. And that it seems like the batting cage is a little under- bit more upgraded. <laughs> <laughs> so 2015, you retired. Now, what are you doing now? I, I know that you spent a lot of time with the kids and you've got some other projects, but now that you're yeah. retired, what's going on? Well, I, when I first retired, I had started Buck Athletics, which was a, an equipment, kind of an equipment company. I started creating bags and had some patents and some utility patents and got into kind of the entrepreneurial. Was doing some also some, uh, which actually sold that, those patents and some of that stuff to Lizard Skin, which if you see their bags and they're eerily similar to uh, what you saw the old Buck athletic bags. Oh, yeah. um, so I was able to kind of exit left with that and pull that off and ha- and started getting into some technical, like uh, tech business with the players union, usually baseball got close to a deal. And actually the, the company next level locker was in the collective bargaining agreement, but it was kind of one of those, if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it was the right way to do it, but someone had to stand up and kind of be that third-party business. Unfortunately, as you can tell, and the rest of the world can tell right now, they're not getting a whole lot, let alone, you know, right. at the time it was, they couldn't agree with it. I don't know if you remember the shoe colors. Remember, you yep. hearing a little, I was the cause of all that, right? And I was saying, they're selling that stuff to us. There was, you know, where we kind of create a locker where you would be able to go click on your favorite player's locker and, and literally see down to his socks and, and what type of sliders he uses and why he uses them, have direct access to them. And then also it would lead into kind of an AI because their name, likeness, image, your voice, as you know, going into those type of games now, which is a huge revenue stream for them. Like how do we own and take some ownership in our name, likeness, and image? So started that company. The name itself, Next Level Lockers, a placeholder in the collective bargaining agreement for another company. That didn't work out, but 
kind of moved on from that, started some other entrepreneurial things, doing some counseling, if you will, or, or advising for a, a company called Blue Chip Analytics, which is a lot of you young kids out there. This is how early any, anything that you put onto the internet, anything, they can go out there, take the imprint of anything, your TikTok, social media, teams are getting that right now and they can start a basically a psychoanalyst analog of who you are as a person, your anywhere from your sexual behaviors to your aggressiveness to your passiveness. They have that documented and it starts literally your and they take that imprint of your entire, you know, electronic Ethernet imprint, if you will, and they make it and it's within about ninety-eight percent. So the stuff they can tell by the fluctuations in your voice on interviews or TikToks and weird things that you do. They get a lot of data from that that I don't think the average person realizes that they're analyzing you, you know, when you're putting that on when you're 12 years old, that that may be the difference whether you get drafted in the, the fifth round or the first round. So working for them, doing some, like I said, some advising for that company, more or less setting up dates with players and teams right now. But uh, that, that company's definitely getting legs. And then started getting into uh, franchisee and franchisor business here with restaurants right. of late. Yeah. Nice. Well, yeah. I, a little, little, little busy. I can't sit still. You know me, Sean. No, no. I, what I know of you, you're, you're constantly moving and, and constantly doing something, which is a good thing. But I think the thing to, to remember on that is that, I mean, you have the freedom to choose at this point. Like you can choose what projects to get involved, what projects to, to kind of push to the side. And if something doesn't work, it doesn't kind of destroy your whole, your whole world. And, yeah. and I, I talk a lot about that in our, in different podcasts that I do and different, you know, interviews that I've done. I connect back the game of baseball a lot with, with retirement planning and, and income planning and, and really how the game progresses and changes from, you know, when you come in as a catcher, when the manager sets a game plan, that game plan works until it doesn't work, right? And, the, and something happens that's kind of the unknown, and you really need to adjust at that point. So what I thought that we'd do today during our time is, you know, I equate like the game of life in thirds like the game of baseball, right? Mm-hmm. And so those initial three innings, you know, as a catcher, you, know, you probably played catcher since you could walk. Yes. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I think there's more prep from a catcher's perspective, much like the manager and much like the pitcher to prepare for an initial game. And you have a game plan. And usually that comes through the first three innings and kind of the way that I equate that to planning is, you know, those are more the early stages of of savings. You know, when you're, let's call it in your, your thirties and Mm forties, you know, you're, you've got a plan, you're trying to save, you're trying to accumulate wealth, but that's got to adjust at some point. And when, when you look at going into a, a game, what's your mindset? You know, you're seeing the batters first time through the line, lineup. What's your mindset as a catcher? Okay. And then this is, and when we talked about this earlier, I started thinking, all right, how are we going to relate this? You know, cause I kind of got your angle on it and, and even started planning on work that I've done with my financial advisor and how we set up and like, how, all right, how does this relate? And I started thinking it's perfect. Because you got you, you you always got to have a blueprint for success, right? You have your right. blueprint for your game plan. Once you have that blueprint, how do you execute it? How do you get to the end with not only reserve but maybe some cherries on top, extra pitches, if you will? Try to get to the end of the game with as minimal pitches as possible. Because usually you get to uh, one ten, one fifteen, 
you're starting to look down that bullpen like, uh-oh, they're, they're going to come get me soon, right? So we want to get to the end of that game. So if I have a pitcher I want to get late in the game, say we got uh, Matt Harvey, right, for instance, it was a strikeout pitcher, so I had to use my pitches wisely. So early in the camp, so we'll say the first three innings of the game, right, I would be a lot more aggressive with my fastballs, trying to minimize my pitches, maybe pitch to contact mm-hmm. on those earlier hitters, really target my guys where I may have problems or in the financial, what are my problem months, what are my problem scenarios that will come up and have a blueprint and a plan prior to that. So if that happens, I make that adjustment. Obviously, baseball is a game of adjustment. But if I plan ahead and say, all right, I got Cabrera who's coming up, I'm going right after him. I get Cabrera knowing that I'm going to go after him, then I can utilize that, whether I go with maybe a cutter earlier in the count, in a fastball count to get you know that ground ball and do – because he's a contact power-hitting guy and a smart hitter to make an adjustment – that's how I'd make my adjustment. Get him on the offense, seeing that what I'm doing, so then I can adjust to him. And that would lower my pitches, keep my pitch count down, but also keep him off of the heaters, so right. to say. Let's have in that blueprint of how do I minimize my pitches and use, you know, to prolong my my outing by minimizing pitches in the earlier first three innings by staying fit, fastball attack mode. Where if I go into the middle of the at-bats after I've had an at-bat like him or have been attacking guys, they're going to make those adjustments. Guys like Cabrera will make those adjustments earlier. Then I can use that same plan later. Or if they're lower lineup type hitters, generally they're down on the count with a guy like Harvey or Grinky or those type of guys that would longer in the innings, your Kershaw's. You see them, they'll be a lot more aggressive with their off-speed pitches early in the count and just flip counts at that point because they have that ability to be able to like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this to you the first two and then pitch backwards, but still keeping within the same amount of pitch counts to keep your pitch count low. That way, when you get into the latter half of that game and you need to mix up, you have those pitch counts or that savings, if you will, for those cloudy times later in the game when you have it, instead of using all those pitches early in the early in life or in the life of the game, using those as an emergency because you've already game planned prior to having those quick adjustments, if you will, those answers for those things that you knew to come up because you've spent the time to make a detailed blueprint. You know, that's your game plan. That's, that's why you would show up to the field at 11 with homework already done from the night watching film night before with those things that, you know, like here's my early swingers, who are my Cabreras who were adjust, who are the, you know, those are your simple game plan. That's the stuff that you just you know you had to do. And right. then you get to 1130 and well-define that, that blueprint with your pitcher because he's going to have ideas. So come around at the end of that night, right around 6 o'clock with that pitcher, you're going to the game where you're both seeing eye to eye. So if those things that do need to adjust, he's well aware of it, I'm well aware of it, so that it, it could save you four to five pitches in an inning if he knows where I'm going after something happens. Does that make sense? So we yeah. should oh, yeah. Cabrera make the adjustment. We're on the same page. It doesn't ruin the flow of the game. He knows what I'm going with, so he may not waste that pitch. He may go to the out pitch that, that I'm on rather than throwing a ball in the dirt. He may try to be throwing that pitch for the strike. That could save you five pitches and, of course, even one inning. Which is huge because, I mean, and the one thing that, that I caught on to that you said is that 
you're game prepping for the next game the night before. People yeah. think that, oh, man, they just show up at the ballpark at 5 o'clock. They take some BP and yeah, we, play some baseball. There's a lot of prep that goes into that and a lot of planning that goes into it as well. Yeah, we the night before, the night before a series, so the, the series before, we have this thing called Bloomberg Sports, which it gives you on every hitter, and it gives you detailed numbers on 00 pitches, 01, 10, you know, every count you can think of, and then fastball, curveball, slider, what they do on those pitches, what they do on the count of those pitches, location of it, everything. And it shows you digitally. So the wow. night before, I, and I tell, I tell my, because you get a film guy, I said, all right, they'll send you the film. I want the last three games. I liked having their last three games of what they just got done doing. Because that tells me, what are they doing right now? Like, is Cabrera looking inside right now? Is he hitting the ball inside? Or is he really on his inside out game right now where he's dominating that and adjusting to the inside, right? And that's when he's as dangerous. That means I need to, like, that tells me right now, okay, I need to make him real aware that I'm going in right now to get him in that mode that I was talking about, right? And right. if I get him in that mode, then that, that'll save me just that one hitter and a very good hitter, that saves me five, like I said, five to six pitches, you know, well, which over a compound effect of four or yeah. five good hitters in a lineup, that's a lot of pitches. That's getting me to the later innings. And being aware of that and starting, that's why I like seeing that. What are they doing right now? Because if he's, if he's in a mode of a pull mode right now, it's like, oh, great, I got him. Whoever he just played just did that work for me. I can right. go live on the outside and get those pitches. Right there saves me three to four pitches on the average. Well, and, and so depending, yeah. like in the National League, I mean, pitchers have li- much limited, more limited life than yeah. they do in the in the AL, just because of you know designated hitter and stuff. But you know, talking about a guy like Harvey, I watched I watched Harvey pitch, and you know, you you guys came in, and the goal was to get let's get through the first time in the lineup, like those first three innings. Let's have a clean slate. Let's Let's not get to 60 or 70 pitches through that. So you've come up with a, a clean plan to get you through there. But then the game changes. You know, maybe runners get on. And second time through the lineup is much different. And, and kind of the way that I look at it is the second time through the lineup is let's call it the 50 to 60 year age, right? That's mm-hmm. you're right on that cusp of retirement. And there are some adjustments that that have to be made in the plan. Like a lot of people they go into retirement like their, their initial game plan, but adjustments aren't made. And so as you look at, at the game from a, from a catcher's perspective and really a field general, what are you doing with your pitchers to say, hey, these are the adjustments? You, know, you talked a little bit about it, kind of flipping the kind of the, not the pitch count, but the sequence of pitches. And you've now seen what the batters are doing. You know, how are you adjusting the game plan on the fly with, with your pitchers? Well, because um, I, I got to get to, as a catcher, like you said, as a field journal, I also got to think of them as different accounts, if you will, right? So if I have this pitcher, my main objective is to get a zero and goose egg and win at the end of the game, right? Right. And if I can use him and I see, all right, pitch count, he's not making it to the end, right? He's not, a, I'm going to start throwing the kitchen sink because I need to get, I'm starting, who do I got going on in the pen? Right. Do I got a lefty coming up? You know, who do I have coming to hit? So I may start pitching around this guy to get to that guy because I know I got a lefty in the pen. So I'll start 
strategizing my own head, right? I can start using everything now with this picture mm-hmm. or saying, all right, I got to let it all hang out with this guy or maybe he's doing good. And I got those middle innings and I'd be like, all right, he's doing it. He's rolling through these lineups. He's doing good. Let's stick to the game plan. But if not, what can we go to? What stuff does he have? What do I have coming? And then also, you know, depending on the scoreboard, am I going to go to the bullpen and win? That may right. determine where I turn up the dial using the rest of his stuff to get him, you know, maybe another time through the lineup, getting him to turn over that lineup one more time. And so that, like I said, maybe a different account. So I may just dump everything that he has. Right get him through that so that I can get to my middle inning pitchers that are kind of like my, uh, they're your, uh, your Roth IRAs, right? They're going to be steady. You know where you're going to get, they don't change. They just kind of, they're steady. Usually the the roles are pretty similar in the pin. That's why they're middle of the bullpen type guys. Yep. And they, they maybe bridge a couple innings to get to your latter half inning guys or usually your power arms, your high strikeout inning guys. So that's how my brain starts thinking. And it depends on where the pitcher is then what would dictate how you would do that, you know? And because I've had young bullpens and I've had experienced bullpens that sometimes know their roles like that and their set roles. Right. But also knowing guys that are, that are in a young bullpen, sometimes I'd have to discuss with my pitching coaches prior to the game. If we get in trouble around the fifth or sixth, who are you going with? Are you going with right. a young, young kid, a lefty that might be spotty? That may mean that I'm a little more aggressive with my starting pitcher because I know he's going to be iffier on the other side, you know, because I'd be kind of learning. Those are things I have to learn and, and deal with, too. A catcher has to. All catchers have to. Right. But if I have a little bit older guy on the, on the back end, I can be real aggressive with the young guy or the starting guy because I know those older, more experienced bullpen will handle that on the back side of it. So, I mean, the, the idea it, with those middle guys, you know, they're not usually the dominant guys that are going to come in and shut the door. You know, right now we're seeing some pretty hard throwers that are coming in the seventh, eighth, and, and ninth innings. But what your goal is, is to start to prepare that fourth and sixth they're inning. inning eaters. Yeah, they're, they're inning eaters. They're going to be consistent. Yeah. To get through to the seventh, which, you know, I, I bring it back to the planning side. And that's, you know, the seventh thing, we'll call it retirement, seventh through ninth. I mean, that's the end of the game. You got to, you want to shut the door. Unfortunately, we know that we're all going to die at some point, yeah. but we don't want to run out of money in the eighth inning. You know, we want to, we want to end the game strong. And so I like that point that you've got these guys that are going to come in. They're going to, whether it's your starter or the middle inning guys, there's going to be plenty of adjustments that are made. But now, you know, seventh inning rolls around. We'll call it retirement. Now you're, you're trying to slam the door shut on the other team, and you're, you're now making decisions that are, that are to get to the end of the game, and planning needs to change again, right? Yeah. And, two, those decisions become more costly, too, at the end. Right. You know, and, and so I think preparation on this end of it is maybe more important than some, you know, probably the most important because, you know, that gap is narrowed, you know, your, t- your time to recover off, off of bad decisions way less. And it's going to hurt a lot more, uh, cause you, you know, in retirement, you don't, you don't necessarily want to go back to, to work, you know, right. You don't necessarily have to spend another guy out of your bullpen, so to say, you know, cause you got tomorrow's game and then the next game. And if you wear right. down the bullpen, you wear them out, 
and it hurts for the rest of the, the rest of the week, the rest of the series until you get another starter to go deep into the game. So, you know, those, those decisions become a lot more costly if they are wrong decisions. So I think you're again, back to your blueprint and your yep. planning. That's huge because that will help mitigate risk on those decisions that may be costly. And if they are costly, having a plan to back that up, a secure plan to back that up, whether it be your financial planning or what guy am I going to go to to help me get out of this you know, bullpen situation because that'll affect for the rest of the week or the rest of your life if you're talking uh, financial planning. Yeah, I mean, bad decisions. You know, I, and I say that, uh, a manager doesn't lose the job in the first inning. Like your plan's not going to blow itself up in the first inning. Yeah. They get fired for decisions in the ninth inning, right? Yeah. You know, or yeah. you know, third base coach sends a guy from second to home when you've got a Cabrera coming up with two outs. Probably not the best decision to make yeah. in the bottom of the ninth. You know, yeah. so that that's very scenario that you brought up. If the third base coach or the managers pre-plan this. This is why you see those managers with those cards. If you ever look into the dugout and looking at those cards, I promise you they've ran that scenario. That scenario comes up, they look at it. They know what they're going to do. They look at the card. Yes, I've already made this. I've ran the numbers. I've done the analytics from the analytics team upstairs. This is the right decision. They can say that confidently so that they save their job. Like I did this because our analytics team said this is the right Right. thing to do. (laughs) My gut is what the and my little card, which you guys all saw before the game, says this. Also, so they've done their homework. Plus, the third base coach, they've run those scenarios over in their head over and over again. So when that does to come, even before that pitch, I promise you they're saying, all right, if he hits this and it's in this gap and it goes to his left, Yelich out there doesn't go good to his left. If he goes to his right, I'm shutting him down. But if he goes to his left, I'm sending him. That's been played off in a kind right. of a blueprint in his head or a pregame routine before him. So if he, they make that decision, that's not just on the seam of their pants. That's been well thought out and planned out before him, even in a baseball game. Yeah. I mean, a thousand different scenarios, right? That could yeah. – and unfortunately, you can't plan for them all. You want, you want to be able to, but, you know, life happens and scenarios happen. That's why, you, like you said, you build the blueprint, you build the plan. One thing that, that you talked about earlier, you talk a lot about, and you and I have talked about this with our, you know, even my boy who's seven, your littlest guy is six. And I know that you would do a ton of work with, uh, with athletes on being more mentally strong. And this, this, I mean, this has something to do with, with planning kind of the emotional and, and mental side of it, especially right now with everything that's going on in the markets. But you know, talk a little bit. Can you just briefly give me a, an idea of why the mental side is so port, important in sports, especially in, in baseball? Yeah, well, I think, you know, being in the zone or flow state, like you hear like the Mamba mentality, right? Right. Different ways people have expressed it. And if you've experienced it, you think about if you've experienced it, it's like when time slows down. And, being, and how we attract that zone or flow state, we have very limited thoughts. Like a peak performer has very minimal thoughts. Like mm-hmm. Derek Jeter has 13,000 thoughts probably over the course of the day. And it's, I rake, I hit solid, I'm amazing. That's what his thoughts are. He's right. not thinking, oh, I hope I don't get cut tomorrow. I've been really bad on sliders. I've made a couple there. That's not stuff that's in his brain. Right. right. Stephon Curry shoots a ball and he misses. It 
it's never there's not one iota thought thinking i'm not the guy to shoot that ball like right. i'm definitely the guy to shoot that ball and i'm so the guy i'm gonna go work on it because i'm probably gonna get that those are his thoughts those are limited thoughts to the things that you want not what you don't want and creating a routine and a ritual to mentally have that narrow focus on what you want not what you don't want takes time and preparation I like to break it down into uh, with my young athletes and then guys that I've trained and I've got the same training from Jim Fannin and how I met him was through Alex Rodriguez and he had a lot of his stuff going on in his life and, and the guy that helped him get back on it was Jim Fannin and he's he's if you look him up is the certified zone coach right and he has a program where it helps uh, reduce your thoughts to peak performing thoughts and I broke it down to pregame, in-game, and post-game. Pre-game thoughts are thinking about things you want, visualizing and seeing the state of where you want to go and how you want to get there, and nothing more, nothing less. Not, you know, fog and zone breakers. We're trying to minimize those. And during the game, being very conscious of your self-talk. Are we talking about mm-hmm. where we're going, how we're going to get there, and how awesome you are? hearing those tones and talking to yourself will help minimize thoughts and then post game that's when a lot of thoughts added thoughts that don't need to be there get planted into us is we start telling ourselves i suck why did i swing at that pitch why did i do this why did i do that well the only reason you go back in time is only to learn and to really really learn is like all right i swung that pitch visualize myself then and then here's the mind trick visualize myself executing it correctly off of that thought i would normally have so if it's a slider in the dirt and i'm beating myself visualize myself replacing it and then replacing it with a good thought and then moving on and literally literally moving on not thinking about it and then when it does think about it literally replace it with what you want and not what you don't want and it takes and it seems simple as you talk about it right now but if you right. really apply that it takes hard and because you emotionally get attached to beating yourself up, you know, like yeah. why am I, I went over four, try saying I'm awesome. I'm great. After you go over four and punch out with the bases loaded, you know, right. and then right. to replace that feel like oh, I'm a champion. I'm the man. It's really hard to do. And the best ones are the ones, the, the best in the game are the best at, lo- at losing and failing. They know how to fail forward and get some learning experience out of it. And they're really good at it. And they're able to reduce the stress when the RPMs get high. And I had a scenario when I was kind of going through this and learning this, had this experience with Derek Jeter. We were in Kansas City. It was my first year. And I hit like two home runs that game. And I was like single-handedly, offensively, like beating the Yankees, right? And we're in the ninth inning. We're in Kansas City. And I think bases were loaded. We're up like two or three runs from like two runs from my homer and Derek's up there and he's just fouling balls off three, two count and every pitch and I'm catching, I'm just calling the game like nervous as I'll get out. And Derek like steps in the box, blows a bubble, looks at me, winks and says, John, you having fun yet? So there's two things that happen here. One, Derek Jeter knew my name. That was cool. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, Oh, he just said my name. <laughs> The other part was, I'm like, he's winking and blowing a bubble at me. This does not help me feel less right. nervous. Like, right. I'm like, oh, he's going to be by the balls right now. <laughs> like, I have no chance. I'm this nervous. 
And he's just blowing bubbles, winking at me, right? But I asked him, and, I, and it's funny, I got a picture in my cage. I'll have to show you next time you come over. I have a picture during this conversation. And I went to him, I was like, dude, I felt this way. Like, how did, like, how were you doing that? He goes, I started to feel, like, I was there. I started to feel that and start thoughts, okay? Thoughts started to come into my head. He goes, so I stepped out, blew a bubble. What I do is I try to go back. Remember I said mentally put yourself back into a state where you want to be, where mm -hmm. you reduce thoughts. He went back. He goes, I, went, I was blowing a bottle of winked at you, telling myself, go back to Battle Creek, Michigan. So in right field at his house, he was telling me that's where the trees were. His neighbor that didn't throw the ball back lived on the left, was in left field at his house, right? Right field is where the tree and the home runs. That's why he's so good at hitting right. He ah. goes, I, was, I felt like I was starting to guess because you started to get in my head. He goes, well, I looked down, I looked back at you because you were in, I felt like you were in my head. And I was like, really? I wasn't, I wasn't there. Like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I got him. But then he goes, so I looked at you and you were looking at me and I was like, so I went back to like, winked at you, blew a bubble. That's why you see him blowing bubbles, right? Yeah. He's putting himself back in and battle creek michigan to be a kid again go back and be a kid and hit the balls to the tree he's minimizing making the game as simple as he can that means his brain is starting to go and i was like really wow. so of course i started googling things how many times was he blowing bubbles right yeah. <laughs> but that's what he does is he tries and he's and he told me as soon as i started feeling the rpms go up i go back to battle creek michigan and make it simple and easy and hit balls to the trees Wow. And right center in Battle Creek, Michigan. And that's reducing thoughts at its core. So that's something that's always, you know, one of the greatest players to ever play the game was yeah. doing the same thing and had that experience. And obviously, you have an experience like that sticks with you because I, I got to feel it. Like I could right. feel the energy of like, oh, if I call the wrong pitch, Jared, Jeter's going right center off the wall and all my home runs are for not. Like I was right. super nervous. This is like still my first rookie year in the big leagues, right? And I'm not about ready to – I felt that. And Derek felt it. And then he was able to articulate it where he could, exp like, explain what we just felt. And it was something that definitely changed me for the better and made me a better zone performer. When you're on deck and you're feeling those little butterflies, that's your body getting ready to go into the zone and basically superhuman. And if you can learn to embrace that and not have those added thoughts of, like, oh, no, I'm feeling nervous, no. It's, oh, no, I'm getting ready to be superhuman and a beast. Because that's where you want your brain to train to go. And the specials are – the special people are the ones to be able to tap into there and really do it. But it's also knowing the knowledge of, all right, this is what's really going on. I'm about ready. My body is about ready to be superhuman. That's why moms can lift cars when that happens. Right. Because they go into that zone. There's not like, oh, this car is heavier. It's they just do. And those special athletes are able to step uh, – you know, kind of in a way step into that. So the question is, did the Royals win, end up winning? Of course. We, of course. <laughs> look it up. <laughs> yeah. I got an article around here with that. <laughs> so, and I'll, I know you spent about an hour with me today. I appreciate it, John. But you're telling me the one thing I do want to touch on before I let you go is you told me a little bit about some work that you're doing with Vincent Vargas and, and kind of the more giving back and really pushing out and helping our community. Do you want to talk briefly about that and, and kind of let yeah. Let everybody know. Yeah I, think, yeah, I think especially with what's going on in the world, right? Right. Uh, I think you can see, you know, how, you know, the level of stress 
and the things that are going. And I don't think, you know, I don't, I can't fathom it. I mean, I've had stress on a baseball level and it's been, it's real, you know, you get those chemicals and those things going and dopamine levels going up and down. And then you take it to the degree of in the line of combat in Vincent's case with a lot of those vets or front lines with officers and my cousin, my dad also did some work with, uh, he was a PA and, and worked with the psychology department with uh, a lot of the cops and firefighters because to have those dopamine levels go up and go down, feel like you get shot and then die. And then there's, I think we need to be a better job in, at one, realizing what they're going through. I think some of the things that people that are, you know, get a little power and then you get a little bit of brain damage because of what's going on. I think educating ourselves about that a little bit more and also providing resources so that there's really like, when you come off a of military, they get debriefed. Now, police officers, they're in the line of duty day in, day out for like 30 years. There's not really a really debriefing on officers. And I think we're seeing some of the, the offshoots of that because that hasn't quite, I don't think it's done right or correct or, or the resources aren't there for it. And uh, I think being aware and putting more resources and efforts into that is something that's kind of caught my eye and, and my attention that I want to be a part of uh, raising some attention and, and, and doing what I can to help provide that or at least bring the topic up. Cause I think the more we educate ourselves about it and realize that we can all do a little bit better at one understanding two, providing resources when they're not there for the, these gentlemen and women that are kind of putting their lives in line for us. I think that's a big part of, how we need to move forward. That's awesome. Well, keep keep us posted on how that, and we'll we'll let everybody know where they can get involved, find out about the work that you and Vincent are doing. And John, I I appreciate it, man. This, I just I could sit here and talk baseball all day long. That's mm-hmm. a kind of the beauty of how I why I've intertwined it. You know, I never made it to quite the levels. There's a problem when you're five nine, you know, and and you're lefty, <laughs> but don't you have know, to destroy it. Uh, well, there, I was also, I'm also left-handed. So, you know, the, I think the yeah, only picture yeah, yeah. I ever saw was Casey Fossum and, and he lasted, lasted like two and a half years. But yeah. no, I, I appreciate it, man. And, and I, I, I know that you've got a busy packed schedule. You just got done doing some, some baseball for the boys. So wanted to thank you for, for taking time out of your day and coming on board and chatting with me. Thanks for having me, Sean. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, man. Investment advisory services offered through Elevated Capital Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor.